Happy New Year 2023 and welcome to the first episode of the Off the X podcast for this year. I am your host, my name is Cody, and tonight's very special guest is retired Diplomatic Security Service Supervisory Special Agent and author of the book State Department Counterintelligence, Leaks, Spies, and Lies, Mr. Robert David Booth. Robert served in the Diplomatic Security Service from 1974 to 2002 with overseas assignments in Beijing, Geneva, Tokyo, Haiti, and Paris. He served domestically at the Washington Field Office, as Secretary's Detail, at Special Investigations, at the Office of Training, and then was Chief of the Special Investigations Branch and then Deputy Director of the Office of Counterintelligence. Robert was so proficient at conducting CIA investigations and created so much value and relationships for the Diplomatic Security Service CI branch that once he retired, he was asked back to serve on contract for many years. Robert was involved in some very high-profile counterintelligence cases and many of the cases you might not have heard of, but you will hear of them tonight. So, listen in to Robert as we dive into each of these cases and the shadowy world of counterintelligence. Catch y'all back tonight. So let's let's get into it then. Well, we 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 had a little outline that we talked about, but um, cool. you know, if you if you don't mind, if you briefly go into uh, kind of how you learned about DS, uh, well, your start and 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 your your assignments, and and go from there. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I'm the, I'm the son of a foreign service officer, so I grew up my first 16 years. I lived overseas all my life, and when I, when I overseas, I got to meet these wonderful men and women that worked for the foreign service and also from the military bases, where we would contact when we were assigned to uh, France and, and, and Italy, amongst the other posts my father had. And uh, I always said, I'm going to do government service. There's no question about it. So um, I was actually attracted to the military. So I started off at the Naval Academy. And within a very short period of time, I realized military discipline and my free spirit were not going to work together. So I left the Naval Academy my freshman year, and I went to the University of Tennessee. But while I was at Tennessee, um, my father uh, kept saying, Robert, have you ever considered going to the Foreign Service? I said, yeah, I do, but I'm, I'm kind of more law enforcement oriented to this. And he said, you know, State Department has a group of special agents working in the Office of Security. Never heard of it. Even when I was living overseas, I'd never heard of them. So I just started to do some research. And yes, State Department had this very small law enforcement component called the Office of Security. And it was known as SY, the first letter and the last letter of the word security. And the only reason why I knew a job was opening was I was working on my master's and my father said, hey, Robert, there's a job opening for special agent. We didn't have internet back then. So I applied, uh, the background investigation ensued and, and in 1974, October the 7th, 1974, I came to Roslyn, Virginia and swore at the Washington field office to become a special agent. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and you mentioned uh, when you first started with DS, obviously SY. Yeah, SY and DS. I'll try uh, so, to say DS here for us. Yeah, no, that's fine. And 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 the SY component, did, were you guys doing criminal investigations back then when you were still SY? When we were SY, we uh, in the Washington Field Office, which still exists, it's right, it's, it's located right behind SA20. What we normally did were background investigations, about 80% of the job, 15% of the job was protection, and there was 5% were State Department. We had a couple of agents doing passport and visa fraud. Otherwise, we were not doing real criminal investigations. No. 
Okay. And were the classes still called BSAC back then? No, we didn't even have a BSAC class. Okay. So you're, um, you're, you're pre-BSAC I, zero, one of pre-BSAC I, one. Uh, yeah. If you go to the um, uh, training center out there on Gallows Road, there the second black and white photo, the second one, is actually me, and that's the second special agent training done by at an ad hoc group of agents who mentored us for about two weeks. That was the extent of our training. Okay. And uh, I don't want to get too far off topic, but I know I have a lot of guys that, that like guns, guys and girls. That like, what, what were you guys carrying back then? Oh, Smith and, Smith and, Smith and Wesson Model 19, two and a half inch barrels. Okay. And right we carried on. the Remington 87P shotgun and also the Uzi nine millimeter submachine gun as our a long rifle. Okay. Very good. And uh, how about a brief rundown of your assignments and, and uh, you know, at, e- at each assignment, what your responsibilities were? Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> after about a year in the Washington field office, they were asking for volunteers to go to Beijing, China to serve at our U.S. mission there. Uh, what had happened was the Marines had all been kicked out. They had a bar called the Red Ass Saloon and it got so rowdy and Be- now it's true that the, the Beijing government is very unhappy. So all the Marines were, were asked to leave. And so State Department said, what, what do we staff these positions with? And so they asked for volunteers to go to 18-month tours in Beijing to be pretty much a watchstander. So that was my orientation initial one into what it's like to be an MSG, an American embassy overseas. So I got to Beijing and uh, we did uh, pretty much 24-7. Someone had to be in the building 24-7. Um, the ambassador at the time when I got there was George Herbert Walker Bush who would then come on to be our 41st president. He and his wife are just wonderful. But in Beijing, there was nothing we could really do. Um, you couldn't, you, you, it, was only, it was only a liaison office. It wasn't even an embassy. And uh, there was no crime in the streets. There was no terrorism in the streets. Uh, so that what we did was the political officers started to train us to see what we could see in the streets to report back to them about what was going on in China. because it was highly restricted that particular point. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't even have really good quality uh, telephones. But what I first learned there in Beijing was the beginnings of counterintelligence, to really understand what the Foreign Service Nationals, which I think you now call LESs, what they were up to, how to practice good OPSEC. Um, but that was pretty much it. We weren't allowed to do very much at all. We couldn't be we couldn't even hire local guards. We didn't have a Foreign Service National Investigator. It was pretty. It was a very unremarkable tour. Nothing really happened except um, in 1975, there was a huge earthquake in Tongshan. Uh, they suspect up to half a million people died. Uh, I was in my building at two o'clock in the morning. The building's actually starting to sway from side to side. I thought I was drunk. Uh, I was not. And so I jumped out of bed, ran downstairs to see the buildings uh, swaying. And what they did, they evacuated the mission. And most of the, and I was the one, there were a group of us who stayed behind. So I actually lived in the conference room for three weeks until architectural specialists said our, our apartments are okay to go back in. So that was pretty much my tour in Beijing. Um, my onward assignment was at Geneva. But again, it was a hybrid position. I wasn't going to be the ARSO to the U.S. mission in Geneva. I was going to be the SALT, Strategic Arm Limitations Talk, security officer. When I got there, I was only supposed to work at the SALT meetings, uh, maybe two, three months of the year. And otherwise, I'd be seconded to the mission to work for the RSO, Dave Roberts. Well, by the time I got there, the SALT security officer position was 100%. You started work in the building to, to keep the building secure because we had Russian negotiators who would come to the building twice a day, sometimes three times a day in order to work on strategic arm limitations talk. 
Once again, no crime in Geneva, no terrorism in Geneva. It was a very unremarkable tour there. But again, I was exposed to counterintelligence because we were always fearful that the Russians might leave something behind in the meeting rooms or the conference rooms where they met with their fellow negotiators. Uh, not much really happened there, except we had a visit from uh, President Carter. Uh, oh, I oh, I forgot. While I was in Beijing, we actually had a visit from President Ford and Kissinger. So in, Be in uh, Geneva, we just had President Carter. So I really reached out to DS and said, guys, you know, I really need to get on track to learn how to be an ARSO. Um, so they signed me to Tokyo. Um, I did two years in Tokyo. Uh, no crime, no terrorism, unremarkable tour, except that we had one Russian defector who showed up in a at a military base and tried to defect. Uh, the U.S. military got him over to the State Department, the U.S. Embassy there, at which point we were able to exfiltrate him out back to the United States. The Russians found out before we got him out. So it was a little diplomatic tussle at the airport while we got the gentleman out to uh, back to the United States. And again, an unremarkable tour is kind of good because nothing bad happened. Um, so you know, some people don't like those kind of tours. They want more action. Uh, well, that would all catch up with me at my next post in Haiti. When I got back from Geneva, though, I mean, I got back from Tokyo. I was assigned to the secretary's detail. Boring and unremarkable. And then I got assigned to what was called a special assignment staff. And special assignment staff is that office at State Department in, in diplomatic security that was one half CI and one half professional responsibility or special investigations. On the, um, I was on the, I was on the professional responsibility side, handling you know all the misconduct, all the drug cases, all the other kind of things. But on the other hand, I got a little exposure to CI when I talked to my colleagues. We, had, we shared a conference room area about what was going on in CI. To me, it seemed like a jigsaw puzzle with no end. They, you know, pieces were missing. You never got to know what really happened. And I was not particularly impressed with what was going on there. So, but in SI, it really opened up my eyes to what was happening around the world and inside the State Department. And what I quickly realized was that when Professor SI uh, was assigned cases. Whenever we, were, we finished up an investigation, the case went up to senior diplomatic security, who was then required to ship the memo or the investigation to M, which is our managers, and then to L to look at it before being referred to DOJ. Well, I chafed at that. I said, this is ridiculous. We're special agents. We don't run this by management. We don't run this by L to see whether or not it needs to go to DOJ. So with senior state DS approval, I eventually started to make contacts with an AUSA, Bill Brooks in Washington, D.C., and others in DOJ, having people guide me. And um, I was able to go back into history and find out a case called Erdos versus U.S. And this is a case where one Foreign Service officer in Guinea-Bissau in the late 60s stabbed to death another Foreign Service officer. Who knows this case? Working with my colleagues at DOJ and others, what that case was critical was, was that the courts ruled on appeal that U.S. government owned or leased property overseas falls under the connection of special maritime jurisdictions, 18 U.S.C. 7. So the court held if a crime occurs on U.S. government owned or leased property overseas, they can be brought back to the United States and tried in the United States. Well, I started pushing this angle. And so finally, um, I was allowed to go to see Bill Brooks on a case where we had a guy named Thomas 
last name doesn't not important, who was committing all this fraud inside the United States. So I in Washington, D.C. So what I did was I brought to Bill Brooks all the evidence that I had about this guy. He said, this is kind of an interesting case. So he took it. And what happens, we actually, we actually uh, worked with the AUSA's office in D.C. to prosecute this State Department employee who then served four years in jail here. But what had happened at that point was working with Bill Brooks, I said, how about if I bring you a case where, and these are small cases, no big case. How about I bring you a case where we believe the general services officer in Athens, Greece, put all sorts of government equipment in his household effects and shipping it back to America. Bill Brooks said, well, I, I think I'd do a case like that, theft of U.S. government property. So what I did is he gave me, we worked out a search warrant. We went out and raided his household effects. We found all sorts of government property inside and we prosecuted him here back in, in the United States, although the crime technically occurred in Athens. So, so what had happened, I slowly got AUSAs and DOJ to uh, recognize the jurisdiction of DS. And this is in the mid eight. It's my most satisfying accomplishment I had in my many years in DS was we finally could go directly to a component of the Department of Justice and um, have our case presented, which they would then prosecute. Yeah, and there are so many cases now that that uh, oh. I, I experienced one in, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City of a guy that was uh, basically selling visas, making millions as a foreign service officer. He was the consul, the consul, uh, the the consular chief. Yeah. And uh, but without what you went through and 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 setting that precedent, it, you know, who knows where we'd be at right now? Yeah, and and the most important counterintelligence case actually was called is called the Scarbeck case. He was a general services officer in Poland, and what had happened was he. His activity became suspicious to the RSO. The RSO was named Vic Dykus, who eventually became the director of DS. And what had happened was Vic had communicated to his supervisor, Ken Knopf, at the RSS's office in, in Germany, saying why he had suspicions of this guy named Scarbeck. Long story short, DS ran the whole case. Only when we grabbed him and he confessed to being providing the Polish intelligence service with documents, did he, we brought him back to the United States. And the moment the plane landed, of course, the FBI takes over the case because we didn't have any jurisdiction espionage cases. But what also happened in the Scarbeck case, which is also critical for us, is that once again on appeal in 19, I'm trying to remember the year, the, um, the defendant said, well, this crime occurred overseas. And the judge once again held no. He stole the documentations. They were called dispatches, gave it to the Polish intelligence services. So you're going to we're going to prosecute for uh, passing classified information, not necessarily espionage. So we had two cases, Erdos versus U.S. and Scarbeck, where uh, the courts and DOJ recognizes DS's ability to conduct criminal investigations overseas and have them tried in the United States. Wow, that's awesome. Very good. So uh, uh, an assignment that you, you learned a lot from, because it sounds like uh, you, well, you ended up going back there, and I think it might have changed a little bit at the time. But what was your next assignment? Well, of course, now I've, I've done five years in D.C., and I, I haven't had a hardship tour since Beijing, so it's time to bid on a hardship tour. And uh, so I bid on Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Now, I had been there before on, on, on an investigation uh, based out of SI, and it was pretty tough when I was there. And I said, well, maybe I can make a difference working with the embassy. All I can tell you, Cody, it was a hot mess from the day I arrived to the day I left. It was crime every day. It was street effervescence. We had Dr. Paul Alexander from the USAID compound and was stabbed to death in front of his wife in his bedroom. 
We had the political counselor's wife stabbed in the back in the consular parking lot. And by the time I got there, the police were shooting it. Uh, his name is Joseph Kennel. Um, in the parking, blasting out the windows of the cars in, in the parking lot. And luckily it was a sealed uh, building. Uh, by the time I got inside, uh, Debbie had been brought inside, and luckily one of the young consular officers had been an emergency room nurse in New York and started to, to do the work she needed to do. Uh, she, she survived. Uh, but also then we had a, a poor Peace Corps girl who was raped in Jacmel. We had a USAID contractor shot in the leg in his house. It, every morning I got up, Cody, I wanted to do something, was overcome by events, when the moment I walked through the door, it just, I was only, I was only, I opened up the post. There was no RSO before me. And it was just, it was, I, I was with great relief, honestly, when I, when I left Haiti, it was just, it, the, the effervescence never stopped. And, and there were guns and, and there were issues and Americans were just targeted because we were Americans. We, the, the Brits didn't have a consulate there. Very few embassies existed there. Um, and, and it was, it was, a pretty tough assignment, to be honest with you. Very tough assignment. So that was a hardship assignment. Was it a two-year or one-year? Two-year. Two-year. Oh, two-year hardship. That's, that's a long two years. <laughs> it, it, would, it would pay itself. Well, I'm a French speaker. I'm a, I'm a three plus four. And there was the other reasons why I went to Haiti, because going to a post where you don't speak the language, you, you, some of your effectiveness is lost. So I remind a lot of, I do remind a lot of students um, that uh, who asked me about going to DS and whatever, I would say, what, what should I learn to do to go to DS? I said two things, learn how to write and learn a foreign language. We will teach you how to shoot a rifle. We'll teach you how to shoot a Beretta or, or Sig Sauer. We'll teach you all of that. We'll teach you the M, whatever guns, long rifles you care today. But if you can speak a good foreign language and write well, take advantage of it while you're in college. Yeah, that's a good tip that still stands today. Uh, the tips I tell, I talk to people about, I say the same things. Like they'll teach you how to do investigations. They'll teach you how to shoot. Uh, for me, it's the interpersonal skills. It's the understanding of building relationships, the value you can have with relationships, the effective communication, the active listening, uh, you know, just just understanding uh, you to, for a security program to, to really work. You have to have buy-in from, from the top from the section heads, from DCM, from ambassador. Otherwise you'll just be disregarded in many cases. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a good tip. What was, uh, what was after Haiti? <laughs> well, I came back and was assigned to education and training office and that I was responsible for RSO, ARSO, PSO, FSNI training. Um, we were located there in Roslyn, Virginia. And, uh, it was kind of tough because I don't have any background in, in that kind of work. And luckily for me, Jeff Bosworth, who was the head of the education training staff, said, Robert, after he's, he's known me for about a year, and he said, Robert, you could really benefit by going back to school at Georgetown University. And it's a certificate program. It's a year-long program. It's all about training adults how to train adults, how to do a needs assessment, how to prepare a, a, a class program, how to develop a, what they call a needs assessment. So I went for you. The only the only caveat Jeff told me was that if you start and you don't finish, you was thirty six thousand dollars. So there was an incentive to finish. But it taught me a lot of things about being a good speaker, how to do presentations. When do you do PowerPoint, not do PowerPoint? I mean, I had a, a holy fear of getting up and standing in front of a podium and starting to teach. At the Georgetown School, I learned how to overcome that, and I think I learned how to be a better, effective speaker, and I learned how much important, how important it was, really, to be able to craft together a training syllabus. 
So while I was there, we moved from Rawls and out to our present location in Gallows Road, where um, I did a lot of teaching out there. And then I became known to the intelligence community and others, where people asked me to come out to talk to other agencies about what DS was all about. And I started to enjoy that. Got a lot of fun out of that. Uh, the three-year tour was up very quickly. Um, and then I guess the kindest way to say this was I was directed to apply for the head off head position in the office of SI, professional uh, special investigations, professional. I really did not want to go back there again after four and a half years. I just found a lot of the cases that we did were just really kind of, um, especially the misconduct cases. Um, I just really didn't want to go back through it again. But um, I, I was kind of told you didn't have any choice. That's where senior leadership wants you to go, Robert. So I ended up back in uh, the head of PR where we did a lot of unauthorized disclosure investigations. We had agent misconduct cases. We had uh, sexual misconduct. And, and again, let's historically talk about this. You know, prior to 1990, if you were gay, State Department didn't investigate you uh, and to see whether or not if you were gay, if you did not come out of the closet, you were fired. And when you weren't fired, your security clearance was pulled. And from that point, you could be terminated. About 1991, I had a talk with senior DS. I said, look, we are, we are do investigating gays for what? They're not violating the law. They're no more blackmailable than a heterosexual who plays around on his wife. And I said, we're wasting resources. And I flat out said, I have many gay friends. And, and, and why, are we, why are we investigating gays? And in 1990, late 1991, I, we just did not, if we got an allegation of an officer who was gay, we just didn't do anything. So by, nine, late, by 92, uh, the, the sexual misconduct that they were known uh, was just simply pushed to the side. Thank God. Yeah, that made that made no sense. Uh, there's a lot of reasons you could be blackmailed. You know, they, yeah, they, I mean, they I, I, I kept telling the senior director, <laughs> would have to arrest half 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 the half the DS heterosexuals on the secretary's detail. Um, yeah. And I just, I just, I, I, I went ahead and did all the other investigations that we had, and we had some, we had some pretty bad ones. The suicide ones were some of the worst. Um, we had some deaths, unattended deaths overseas. Uh, we had some gun running. Uh, you name it, drugs, misuse of the pouch. Um, just a lot of things that um, are, are tough to investigate and tough to get through. Uh, didn't do any CI work at that time, although CI was always great. CI would come to me and say, hey, Robert, we know this guy's an al alcoholic. What are you guys going to do about it? I said, we'll refer it to medical, which is what you're supposed to do. And uh, it, it was kind of a funny meeting we had with um, uh, SI and, and CI at that particular point. But my two years was up real quickly. Um, because I'd served in Haiti, it's time for a good tour. Uh, I'm a fluent French speaker, but I decided to go back to Foreign Service Institute for another four months for a refresher. I did get a 4-4 when I got out in July and then ended up in Paris, France as the DRSO. Um, the RSO slot was not open, but I said, I, I don't mind being the deputy, it's fine. I'm going to a post that I think I'm gonna enjoy. Uh, my father had served in Paris from 1960 to 1964. I said, sure, I'll go back, be fine. And I ended up there. Gary Caldwell was the boss and I was the DRSO. We had a couple ARSOs, a CB and a, and a, and a uh, engineer. But Gary and I came to a quick agreement that he would be policy and go to all those unfortunate meetings 
and I'd be the ops chief. I'd run all the investigations. I'd take care of the ARSOs. I'd take care of the Marines. He would work with the uh, non-commission, no, no, the, um, we don't call them non-commissioned officers in charge. We call them the, the oh, where are they are? The gunnies now, I forget the name. Um, and so he would deal with the senior Marine, the senior people at post. Well, I just ran all the other stuff, the local guards, the Marines, the AR, and it, was, and it worked out just fine. We, we had a brilliant uh, uh, three years there. Um, but it was in Paris that I actually came into understanding counterintelligence in a way I'd never seen it before. Uh, just before I arrived, Operation Iceberg had concluded in which two FSNs working, LESs, working inside the embassy, in fact, had been recruited by the French intelligence service to spy on the Americans. And although they now only had access to unclassified material, they were valuable in helping the French intelligence service, the DST, to identify intelligence officers working inside the embassy undercover. And here's how they did it. And it's frightening to see how simple it was. One of the FSNs was an HR. And what she could see is every year, the list would come out, a printout sheet of all the people assigned to the American embassy and their retirement codes. Well, foreign service officers in the political section have a foreign service officer retirement code and political officers in the, foreign, in, in the political section one or two had different retirement codes. How easy is that to find somebody who's not foreign service? Sure. Well, once we found that out, I mean, we had, to, we had to do a lot of changing back here in Washington, D.C. But that's the simple. It's like, wow, the FSNs can now identify intelligence officers under diplomatic cover. And also means when they submit vouchers, then they can check back with the DST surveillance team to see whether or not they stayed at the hotels and what they did. They had us blanketed. And I'm saying this is a friendly country. And that's when I found out friendly countries have their own objectives and responsibilities too. But at the same time, I got a message from headquarters saying, Robert, we have information from a Russian um, turncoat, I guess is the best way to call him, um, who has supplied the intelligence community a lot of information. And the bits of the information say that a embassy officer in the 60s had been successfully recruited by the KGB. I said, an embassy officer in the 1960s, that's all you got for me? And they said, yeah, and, 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 and can you do anything about it? I said, fine. And they, they, they gave me one last clue. They said, well, we think he worked for something called the Tourist Bureau. I'd, I'd never heard of that in any embassy I'd ever worked at. And what I had to do was I had to go to see the um, locals in the HR section of the embassy. And what they luckily, they had three by five cards going back to the 50s. These are the pack racks we love. And what I did is I pulled the cards out, A to B, and I got alphabetically. I started every morning with my cup of coffee for 30 minutes, looking through all the three by five cards to see if this American tourist thing existed. And literally, it took me five months before I finally found a card where they had a person's name. And there was a, um, it was called, believe it or not, after, in 1960, John F. Kennedy had assigned people overseas to come to Paris to encourage French citizens to become tourists to the United States. But it had a very special name to it. And I said, that's got to be it. So I actually checked around and um, 
it, there's no, there was only one American officer who ever worked in that position. So I knew, I said, this has got to be it. I was five months of 30 minutes every morning. I got him. So I sent it back to Washington, D.C. I did not send it through the cable. I did not send it through the internet. The class, I said, there's no way everybody can see this. This is an American citizen who I suspect have been successfully recruited by the KGB. So I put it in, in the mail, goes back by correspondence, and no one gets to see it except the person at the other end. So I'm really proud of myself. I'm, I'm walking around. I'm strutting around in my office when no one's looking. And I hear nothing for months. So finally, I send a note to Dick Gannon, who was the head of CI at the time. I said, hey, Dick, uh, can you give me, give me any news? He said, the guy died three years ago. So oh. <laughs> all that work. Yeah. And then... And then another, they, they like what I did there. So they sent me another one, another Matroikin clue. And it said a female officer had been recruited. I'm not going to give you the time frame during this particular time frame at the American embassy in Paris. And I said, if they're saying it's a female officer, the, the, there's got to be a limited number of people, especially back then. So what I did was I actually was able to contact an American citizen who had worked as a secretary in Paris in the 70s. She met a Frenchman. They married. She resigned. But we brought her back with a secret clearance. And I was able to debrief, quietly talk to her. And she said, Robert, there were only two female officers at the American embassy at that time frame. Me, as a female secretary, we knew who they were. So I went back and I finally found an old telephone book. And there were the two names, just as she said, and then the time frame, as indicated. So I'm, again, I'm strutting around my office. I solved another case and I sent the names back to Washington, D.C. Never heard a word. Never heard a word. So we also came across some other counterintelligence activities there directed against the Americans at the um, uh, Paris Embassy. We actually had, and this is in the press, so I, I feel comfortable talking about this. The, the French intelligence service is very unhappy with, with our intelligence activities there in Paris. So what they did in a coordinated campaign, they broke into the private residences of these intelligence officers and literally left notes behind saying, we know who you are. Uh, the senior intelligence officer at post had been asked to leave as a result of the activities of that agency. He did not, after repeated calls by the head of the Ministry of the Interior a guy by the name of Pasqua. And then Pasqua got so pissed that we were not taking any action. He leaked everything to the press. So on the front page of uh, the French Le Monde has a picture of Pasqua complaining about Americans doing clandestine activities in Paris. Wow. I was fully exposed. Then I did also the Paris Air Show in 1993, 1995, where I saw how the French were going after all the American aircraft producers at Le Bourget, where they fly the planes in. Um, the French were uh, sneaking in on our faxes. They were dumpster diving. They had photos of this. They did everything they could to compromise the um, Boeing and Texas Instruments and all those uh, officials out there trying to sell planes and also specifications. One of the funniest ones was for Grumman, Grumman I think it was, what, it, what I eventually found out was the French offered to give free chauffeur rides for the senior Grumman people when they were in Paris. And we eventually found out that the chauffeurs were actually uh, French Air Force officers who were bilingual. 
who would hopefully be able to listen to uh, our Boeing people saying maybe things they shouldn't say in the back of the car. Sure. Wow. That was that was my and that was really got me into CI work. I then prepared a briefing program for every single locally engaged staff person in our embassy and our consular office over the period of two years. And I did it in French. And within months, I was amazed at what the French were willing to come to my office and talk to me about counterintelligence issues. It was, it was, it was a, I, I remember at the end of 1994, I sent in the Rig report and I, and I, it was, it was massive. I'd listed all the things that we'd done, including the two counterespionage cases they wanted me to do. And CI at then came back with this cable saying, you, you shouldn't write all this stuff up at you know, one big slot. You should be letting us know all these things as they occur. And I said, but yeah, but who really cares? So in any case, I got a little, I got a little spank, spanked on my wrist there for you know, not reporting it in as expeditiously as I should. But it really opened my eyes to locally engaged staff spying, um, Americans who had been successfully recruited, and also how countries target our officers in Paris. Uh, in Paris, there was no terrorism. In Paris, there was a lot of pickpocket stuff. It was a good tour for me. Um, I was prepared to go from Paris to Morocco. Everything was set up, but due to circumstances way beyond my control, uh, my postings of Rabat um, was not, did not go forward. And ultimately I was posted to a position that I had never even thought about being assigned to. And that was DSCI. And that was 1995. Um, when uh, I came back from Paris and said, Robert's going to go to DSCI. I had no interest in CI at all from a, as an assignment issue. I didn't mind doing it in Paris, but I said, CI all day long. I said, nah, this, this is not for me. This is, this is spooky stuff. This is stuff you never resolve or anything else. So I was not, I was not excited about getting to DSCI. Well, then you came, became excited about it because you had a lot go on in that office and beyond, right? To even after you retired and some of the things you did, can we get into some of those big cases that you uh, you, you? Sure. First of all, let me let me let me Please. explain what really happened. When I got to DSCI. When I got there, I walked into an office. It seemed like I walked into a tomb. Uh, Steve Jenkins, who was one of my office, I was assigned to one particular uh, geographic specialty. And he took me out for coffee on the second day. I, I'd known Steve for years. And so he said, Robert, this office is broken. We don't do anything in this office. No one knows us. No one knows we exist. We don't have any contacts. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, we're doing counter and espionage. Said, Robert, the intelligence community doesn't know nothing about us. I said, OK. So I go back to the next couple of months I'm there. No one calls me. CIA, NSA, FBI, no one. I'm saying, what's happening here? And so at one point, I got what's called a CIOL, a counterintelligence operational lead from another intelligence agency saying, we have firm evidence that a foreign service officer in an African country deliberately violated the identity of an intelligence officer overseas to a foreign, to locally engaged staff. And I looked at it, person's name's on there. I go, this is a violation of the law. This is great. So I said, Let's contact the FBI. So I go to the director of CI at that time, and he says, oh, Robert, you go take care of it. I don't really have any contacts with the FBI. I said, you have no contacts with the FBI? He says, no, we don't have any. So I just called, called the FBI, and I'm reaching around, and finally I get a, a senior supervisor by the name of Lauren Anderson, 
And she was willing to come over and I showed her the CIOL because they get them too. The FBI gets any CIOL sent to them and says, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's work on this. And that started my um, counter espionage activity with the FBI. Now, a lot of people get upset when the FBI takes over all these things. Well, that's true. 1995, Congress passed the law called the Intelligence Authorization Act in 1995, Section 811. Anytime any federal agency believes that they have counterintelligence or counterespionage indicators in their agency, they must, by law, refer it to the FBI. And it comes from the Clayton Lone Tree case, the Marine who was caught in Moscow. We, we won't go into that. There were some screw-ups in it, and so they said only the FBI can do it. Well, that started me to meet my FBI colleagues. And um, I all of a sudden realized they didn't know who we were. And that's the problem on our part. You know, Cody, you come to an office, within 18 months, you're bidding out. And so we don't, and some agents leave within 14, 15 months to attend language training and updated training. So the FBI in dealing with DS in the past, we were never there for a long period of time. The trust and the bonds were not created. We talked about that earlier, developing relationships. Well, we couldn't, we didn't create them. So the FBI uh, started slowly to work with me on some of these cases. And then Dave Harrison, the investigative chief and acting deputy, decided to leave about a year after I was there. So I volunteered for his position and I got the, the, the deputy chief position. And from that spot, I was able, because at that point, other agencies love titles. I was the deputy director of CI. So they're more than willing to start to call me and say, Robert, we have this. We have some indicators here. Can you help me? And I was very aggressive. I was incredibly aggressive on those. And I was very aggressive in getting out the CI briefing programs at the State Department and overseas, helping RSOs and ARSOs develop a good program. The thing I'd learned at Georgetown University about how you develop a good briefing program. And I was very aggressive on that. I was very aggressive on many things about you know, security awareness, CI awareness. At that point, I'd actually have agencies like the CIA and the DIA and ICE. I would be going to their agencies, giving counterintelligence briefings to their officers and certain of their officers going overseas. I did thousands, thousands of people. And that's when the word started to get around, there is DSCI. And then the other agencies were willing to really come in. And I was in, what happened was I extended as the deputy and I literally ended up spending six years as the deputy and one year as the acting chief in, in CI. So I had seven total years in CI. And that allowed uh, for, for continuity and allowed the FBI to come and see the same face they dealt with in the past. Yeah, I think that's an added value that uh, the department allowed you to do that. Um, building those relationships, like I said, matter and and, and DS we, we still face this in field offices if you have a decent okay. case and, and a lot of AUSAs don't want to really touch it because they know in two years you'll be gone it happened to me it happened uh, by the time I got back on a to testify on a case of uh some uh, uh, uh passport marriage fraud combined case uh oh. with a, a, a Kenyan uh, fraud ring uh they were was two tours behind so I was already out I'd been to Baghdad I was on the end of Vietnam and I had to come back and and uh well, it had switched agents two or three times but um <clears throat> but at that at that at that assignment is where you kind of got into some bigger 
uh, cases, right? Uh, is it there where the Kaiser case and a few of these others yeah, went on? The, the, we, had, we had a couple of cases that really did not go to trial. So th those were resolved by allowing the, the officer to just simply resign. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I'll accept that. We had a really bad boy in China. We had a really bad boy in Africa and uh, South America. I mean, these are absolutely counter espionage indicators. There's no question in our mind. And we know we're not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's the balance of probabilities when it comes to counterintelligence. Once we get to counterespionage and we go to DOJ, then it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. So I know while I was in CI, very aggressively, we had a, a number, I mean, a number of State Department officers who were terminated, who had their security clearances pulled, effectively ending their career. And also a couple were, uh, were confronted and resigned and some were terminated. And those will never be in the press. And I can't talk about them, but we had a number. But the first big one I had was when the um, FBI approached me to say that they had seen a suspicious individual hanging around the backside of the main State Department um, between 21st and 23rd Street on Virginia Avenue. And they identified him as a known Russian technical officer. And that his activities behind the State Department, sitting on the bench, carrying a bag, earpiece in his ear, and all these other kind of things. They said, um, we think that he's running a tech operation. Now, interestingly enough, seven months before, in working with another FBI agent by the name of Don Sullivan, we had determined that Russian diplomats were being brought to the State Department to engage in diplomatic negotiations, but they were coming at a frequency and a number that the FBI had never seen before. So, and they wanted to know what was going on. So for about Four months, Don Sullivan and I ran a joint operation where we monitored Russian diplomats coming to the State Department and then leaving. Now, we couldn't follow them inside the corridors, otherwise we'd have tipped our hand. But we did notice that a number of the so-called Russian diplomats were, in fact, KGB officers. We saw some come in with bags. We saw some had gotten by. Remember, back then, Russian diplomats were allowed to go unescorted inside the State Department building. I know. It's unbelievable. And I still have the memos. I still keep them for my backup. That's what senior state wanted to do. The bearers, the bearers in hibernation, we don't have to about Russians. So that Don and I ran this operation for four months. And then all of a sudden, it stopped. The Russians were not coming in frequency numbers that they had in the past. So what happened was, well, if they did something, it's finished. So imagine my horror when the FBI said, Mr. Booth, we think this guy is a tech officer and we think Stanislaw has got something inside the State Department. And that's when I turned to the FBI agent. I said, they got a technical device inside. And he said, that's what we think too. And that's how it came about. Because previously we suspected the Russians doing something inside the State Department. But then we found the technical officer loitering behind the uh, State Department on Virginia Avenue. We put two and two together pretty quickly. And so we, we launched a joint FBI DS investigation to see if it was true. And if it was true, where was it? And what do we can do to neutralize it or minimize its operation capability? And so we hear about this uh, this case. I didn't know you were connected to it uh, in, 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 uh, in BC, I think it's BSAC training or, or when we go when, you know, the Marines are assigned to, uh, they call them designated country posts back in the right. day, the, those posts with a higher level. 
I call them first tier because technically you can't say that. Yeah. Uh, I guess back in the day, yeah, who knows? Now, now it's all over. Marie say it all the time. I, I, know, so. I, know. I, I try to abide by the rules 25 years later. I understood. Uh, no, yeah, that was, that was a case that uh, the FBI, again, here's the point. The FBI knew me. They trusted me. So they came over with incredibly sensitive information to share and the videos. Mm-hmm. Had it been someone else, it may not have happened. And so what was the result? Where'd you find it? Well, what it turned out to be, they placed a listening device inside the conference room in the OES conference room. And that conference room on the seventh floor was where Russian diplomats would come to hold diplomatic negotiations, be it questions of law of the sea, be it atmospheric issues, be it aviation issues, things within the public venue. But apparently over a period of time, some of those Russian officers, and I'm sure one or two or SVR said, hmm, boy, we get to walk around escorted. We can get this conference room. Very sensitive information discussed in this conference room when it's done solely by State Department people. So let's get a device in there. And they were actually able to do it. Uh, I think when uh, Don and I were kind of trying to monitor what the Russian diplomats were doing earlier on that year. And so how did you find a device? Did you have a, t- a TSCM sweep or... Well, uh, well, uh, yes and no. What happened was the intelligence community loaned us some very sensitive equipment, which by great luck, you know, old DS, head, old DS headquarters was located right behind State Department, right on Virginia Avenue. So we uh, clandestinely snuck in some very secret stuff inside DS. Yes, we have to keep some of our DS people from knowing what we're doing. And we got in this big closet and literally, literally the second day the device was being operated by members of the intelligence community, it picked up the signal coming from the seventh floor window right outside the conference room. And so um, what we did is um, we went in two nights later, it was in October, 19, oh God, 1997, 1999. And uh, we went in that night and uh, the tech team within about 30 minutes were able to identify a piece of chair rail molding, a very suspicious piece of chair rail molding that using their equipment on it, clearly show that a bugging device was inside the chair room molding. Once we'd confirmed it, we left it all in place and we pulled back out and said, okay, we know they got a device in there. We know Gusev comes by here once every two weeks, probably to download the information that's coming out of this, that's being stored inside this listening device when it's turned on to capture the conversations of, of, of sensitive negotiations going on in this room. And so the decision had to be made. Now, what do we do? And I remember John Tello, who was my boss in CI, we were called over to uh, the headquarters at FBI, the big, in a big skiff. All the members of the intelligence community were there to decide, do we leave it in place? Do we exploit it? Do we send disinformation? Do we disable it and see who comes and gets it? What do we do? And the decision was made that if you're going to prosecute, DOJ needs a certain set of requirements. So we were going to leave it in place, see what kind of information was being captured, because if the information was not TS information being discussed in the conference room when only Americans were in there, DOJ wasn't going to do anything. If it's secret or you know, confidential, they're not going to touch it. So we left it in place. And what the FBI did, they came in and they put some microphones in that conference room and they had a couple uh, television monitors, I mean, TV uh, monitors. And so what we did is we established a special room inside the State Department that we managed on 24-7 only with DSCI agents to see what conversations were being discussed in there, which all was being recorded, and to see what was going inside the conference room on a 24-7 basis. Uh, we did it for almost a month and a half, and it completely wiped out my office. I mean, even I, unfortunately, had a volunteer to do that. I did the midnight shifts. They give some of the younger agents a break. 
And so finally, we had developed enough information. The Department of Justice said, okay, the next time Gusev shows up, parks his car across the street, turns on the device to download the information. A conversation has to occur for 30 minutes, and then you can go ahead and arrest. So what we did was uh, that week of the arrest, we had uh, Fran Saunders, who was our chief analyst, analyst officer in the office, she was given uh, information that she and other members could go into that conference room at an appointed time and start reading very classified information. The OJ was very specific about this. And, and I said, but what happens if a real meeting's going on in there? We're going to just kick them all out to do this? And they said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. We'll pull the fire alarm. I don't know. So in any case, eventually, after some starts and sparks, we got notified by a surveillance team outside the Russian embassy that Gusev had led the compound and was heading down in, uh, at the State Department. At that point, uh, Fran Saunders and her crew were outside the conference room, an OES. Luckily, no meetings were going on. She went right inside, started talking, classified information that had been pre-cleared before. Gusev pulls up his car and literally parks it on, in, on Independence, Virginia Avenue, and I'm in my office looking out my window and I can physically see him pulling his car into the parking lot, a parking space. And what was funny was the FBI had two cars on Virginia Avenue. And when they heard that he was coming up the street on Virginia Avenue, this car just magically pulls out. And lo and behold, Gusev finds this perfect spot on Virginia Avenue right behind uh, the State Department. What was funny was, the car in front was actually an FBI van that was filming everything. Gusev managed to hit the van a couple of times while he was trying to parallel park. So in any case, he gets out, he, he sets up the transmitter to receive the information. He goes for a walk. After 30 minutes, DOJ says, we give you permission now to go to make the arrest. Uh, we arrest uh, Gusev, the FBI and DS arrest Gusev right outside the Smith Center, George Washington University, uh, break into the OES conference room and uh, the device is removed from the wall. And I'm taken down for examination. Gusev was taken down to Washington field office uh, for interrogation. Of course, he did not talk uh, at all. He's, he's a, he was a full SVR technical officer. And uh, being a diplomat, a full diplomat, he was declared persona non grata. Uh, a Russian officer came to pick him up and he eventually left uh, the United States about five days later. That was a very satisfying case. All the agencies were involved. Um, there was a meritorious unit citation given out by the CIA for that case, uh, which I was at with my FBI colleagues. Wow, well-deserved. That's, uh, that's the stuff movies are made of, man. Well, if, yeah. if, you, go, if you go to CNN, go to CNN.gov, go to series, go to the declassified series, go to um, uh, episode 306 in season one, and there, oh, no, I'm sorry, this, this is, uh, this is season three, episode six, I think it is. And CNN did a very good recreation of that whole incident, which is based off chapter four of my book, in which both Don Sullivan, he was retired also, and I actually narrate the story. Um, it's um, declassified. Uh, it's called Espionage Wars, the Ru Russian Agents, I think it is. But uh, you'll, you'll see it up there. So the whole thing is done. So you, you can see it, and, and it's very well done, I think. 
Yeah, good. And what and something I was going to note in the in the intro, uh, whenever I do it, and and uh, that, that I want you to talk about at the end is, of course, you have you have a book that that uh, you know you. you're going to be telling all these awesome stories, and there's a way you could get even more nuanced detail in the book, and so we'll make sure we we uh, we highlight that uh, throughout. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all. That's awesome. Uh, really, really interesting. Like I said, we, we when I do these podcasts, I don't generally. You know, we we do we go over surface level stuff at different posts. And it's everything from terrorism to civil unrest and really exciting mm-hmm. stuff. And you're the first person with detailed information on CI. So I I love that we're digging into this. Uh, you had a few more cases there. Uh, would you like to get into one of those? Yeah. What happened was uh, in 19 in 2002, um, I turned 50. I had 29 years government service. And um, my wife is, is a corporate lawyer. She'd served, well, she, she, she came with me to Paris and um, I had to make a decision whether or not, you know, going overseas again, would she, would she allow to continue her profession? And it was getting tougher and tougher. I was 50, I had a young daughter and I said, you know, I think it might be time for me to go. So I, in 2002, I retired uh, from DS and uh, tried to hide for about six, seven months. DS found me once again, Barry Moore. And said, Robert, we'd like you to come back to work in DSI as a contractor. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm kind of finished with that stuff. He said, how can we convince you to come back to DS? And I said, three days a week, nine to three, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And Barry Moore said, come on back. So I came back and what DSCI did was just simply say, you're going to be the investigative czar. You're going to work with DS agents, helping them do ROIs, crafting cases, and also the FBI was very happy to have me back because they had a familiar face to work with. And I caused a little bit of tension in the office when the FBI would come to see me directly instead of some of the agents, but that's just how they, the FBI was. They knew me, they didn't know them. And so we then started to do more cases. The second case uh, that I had was with the Don Kaiser case. And the sad thing about the Don Kaiser, Don and I had actually served together in Beijing, China in 1975 when he was a young political officer. Bright guy, Mandarin speaker, understood China, China government, Chinese Communist Party. Um, and then Don and I served together for a year at the embassy in Tokyo in 1979. He was serving there being the you know, China specialist out of the American embassy in Tokyo. Again, a really good guy. Um, uh, I trusted him. Uh, I, I, I dealt with him. He's funny, erudite, wrote brilliantly. When he wrote a cable, everybody wanted to see one of Don's cables. And so what happened was the FBI came to our office and said, um, we note that, uh, Don, uh, that Don Kaiser is looks like having some sort of a social relationship with Isabella Chang, who is a, an employee of the Taiwanese Economic Office. It was not an name, we did we not recognize time at the time, but they had a, a semi-quasi diplomatic mission here in Washington, DC. And that uh, Don seems to be meeting her a lot, social settings. I said, he's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for EAP, East Asian Pacific area. He's a lot, he, that's who he meets. And then they said, well, Robert, uh, we strongly suspect she is the intelligence secretary to the intelligence officer here, and that um, the relationship seems to be just a little bit more than social. And that's when my antenna went off because I'd known that Don, in his past years, always had an affection for women, not his wife. And he was already on his third wife. His second wife I knew uh, from Beijing. 
but in any case, uh, that that kind of sets an antenna up and long and short, the FBI working with Kevin and um, oh, um, Giovanna started work with the FBI in monitoring Don Kaiser. And uh, once you get a FISA application, there's enough evidence to suggest that a State Department officer is throwing off enough counter-espionage indicators, um, then the, the FISA court will authorize us to do video and, uh, video and electronic surveillance in the office space and maybe even audio in the house. Um, the problem with Don Kaiser's house was he had family members, so that was not going to go. But inside the State Department, um, cameras on Don's desk and audio on Don's desk was authorized. And that's when the counterespionage indicators started to show up. In his, in his planning daily planning book, whenever he met Isabella Chang, he put a code name. Any other time he met any other person in Washington, D.C., it was their full name. And he, he, he I don't want to go with, he, he showed counter surveillance activity in his office and on, and on the street to see whether he's being followed in Washington, D.C. That says a lot. I mean, the, sure. those, are, those are the kind of clues you can't overlook. Long story short is that um, we knew he was going to meet Isabella Chang clandestinely in Taiwan. And what had happened was he was supposed to go to China to give a, a talk. And on his way back from China, he was going to stop in Tokyo for two days where he had served previously before going back to the United States. But by monitoring him and his phones and his laptops, we understood that he, he was going to fly to Beijing. But by the time he was supposed to get to Tokyo, we noticed he was buying a round trip ticket from Tokyo to Taipei, Taiwan for two days, which led us to conclude that he might be meeting somebody. But that's when we also found out that Isabella Chang would also be flying to Taipei at the same time he was flying to China. A little bit of indication, a little bit of checking in let us know that she would be in Taipei Taipei the same time he would be in Tokyo and that he would fly from Tokyo to Taipei so the two could have a weekend together. We did not monitor him at all in Taipei. That would have just been way too risky. But what caught Don is when he flew back to the United States, we hoped he would commit a simple, stupid mistake. And what we thought he would do is when he flew back and he had to fill out his customs immigration form, he would not indicate that he'd been to Taipei. And on the immigration form, you sign the bottom saying, if I sign this and it's false, it's 18 U.S.C. 1001. And poor Kevin Warner drove all the way out to Dulles Airport the night we knew he was arriving, was able to eventually retrieve that immigration card and in which he said, I've only been to Japan and China. Now, for those who are real sleuths, that actual embarkation card is held in DSCI in an exhibition case in the conference room. We have possession of it. Uh, a critical piece of evidence against Don. So Don comes back. We start to see him do other things. We strongly suspect he has classified information in his house. We also realize that Don is due for an update investigation because are you ready for this? He was being designed to go be the chief of mission in Taiwan at our, yeah. our, oh yes, at our mission in Taiwan. So we said that the intelligence community decided that we could not do that. 
So we actually had, it was time for him to have an update investigation. So we, we got a regular agent, had a woofo to do it, but we let, the, we let the agent know we needed specific questions asked clearly. Have you filled out all your contact reports? Have you filed the information, all your foreign contacts? And this agent was great. He got it. He kind of suspected why he was there, but didn't say anything. Good DS agents know when to be good. And then when Don was finished with the interview, he signed it again, saying everything I've given you is the complete truth to the best of my knowledge, 18 USC 1001. So he had two counts against him. So we could not let him go to Taiwan. So the decision was reached the next time that Don Kaiser had a luncheon with Isabella Chang or with her boss, we just simply have to go and make a detention, not an arrest, a detention. And with, by good fortune, the next meeting that they had arranged, Isabella and her boss would meet Don at a seaside, not a seaside, a seafood restaurant in Arlington, Virginia. And we saw stuff was being passed at the luncheon. At the end of the luncheon, when Isabella Chang and her boss stepped out, the FBI stopped both. And then the FBI also stopped Don Kaiser and took Don back into the restaurant for a talk. The fascinating thing about the two Taiwanese, the senior guy, they took him aside. They took Isabella Chang to another side where they started to say, you've been getting classified information from Don and so on and so forth. And she was, she was kind of confused. She was a young intelligence analyst, secretary, whatever. And she eventually said, well, look, I'll go back to my office in, in, in my office here and I'll give you all the stuff that I got from Don. We couldn't believe it. She did. And she went back to the office and gave the FBI the cable traffic that she had sent back to Taiwan detailing the information Don had given her. And in those cables, it said, do not release Don's name to other people in Taiwan. Don denied everything. But that night, we had a massive joint DS-FBI raid on Don Kaiser's house. And um, um, it was not pretty. Thousands upon thousands of classified and some TS documents was found in his basement. Um, DSA, DS and FBI just left him, left him alone, sitting there with his wife and kids looking at him saying, what, what was that all about? And with that information, uh, we went to DOJ and DOJ authorized an arrest of Don Kaiser for 18 USC 1001 uh, and unauthorized retention of classified documents outside the, uh, his house into his residence. Um, long case, difficult case, but eventually all we were able to do is get one count of 18 USC 1001. Uh, Don had to serve one year and one day, which is a felony. So he's a convicted felon for the rest of his life. Well, yeah, only one year, but I mean, you, 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 uh, well, we stopped, him from going, we stopped, stopped him from exactly. Being, we stopped him going to Taiwan and his, he's over with. And so, like I said, in some cases, we in DS have to understand that, uh, criminal investigations, we love those. Those are kind of great. But if you neutralize the threat, if you stop it from leaking, you've also done your job. Right. You prevented the spillage of, of right. more information. Who, who knows what he was? I mean, you would you would know what he was given, but what kind of damage could that have done to to the government, to you know, to us, U.S. government, if he was the chief of mission, if he was the, you know, in Taipei? So yeah, I think, yeah, I I think looking on. just at the, the criminal charges is, is kind of. Uh, you know, we, we kind of open open the view there and look at look at the big picture of everything that 
was prevented there, you know? Yeah. And the Candace Claiborne case, that was the foreign service secretary who was just convicted two years ago. Uh, she was recruited by the uh, Chinese intelligence service in Shanghai, um, kind of blackmail. So she was supplying information to the Chinese about what was going on side in Shanghai and also here in Washington, D.C. But ultimately, because the intelligence community, the law enforcement community was never able to physically get her or record her handing classified information to the MSS, we did not get espionage. In the case of Candace Claiborne, it was unauthorized transmission of classified documents. Same thing. She served time. I think she just got out. Um, but if we get any small crime or any criminal penalty, she's over with. She's finished. No more spillage. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I know I you know got a few what? others. Well, the, the one that I don't talk about in my book is, is Robert Hansen. And um, a lot of people don't know that Robert Hansen worked for the office um, of, of, oh, I'm not personnel management, uh, the office here in Washington, D.C. that liaises with all the diplomats about getting license plates and all those other things they have to do. Office of Foreign Missions. Office of Foreign Missions. And what happened was he'd served there for four years so that when his tour was up there in Office of Foreign Missions, he was assigned back to the Washington Field Office. Oh, I'm missing his headquarters at the FBI. Once he left that, once he left that office, OFM, I immediately got contacted by Don Sullivan. My, my, again, these are people, FBI agents I work with. They know me. They trust me. And he was given authorization to see me and advise me that the FBI had a counterespionage investigation on, on Robert Hansen. And, you know, again, you're stunned. One of your own, a fellow colleague a TSSCI cleared special agent is a traitor. It's really hard to do that. And so uh, Don said, Robert, we need, we need your help and permission. We need to sneak inside the Office of Foreign Mission at one o'clock in the morning in the next two days. And we want to go break into his safe and um, see what he has in his safe. So I arranged it with um, DSO, DS Domestic, I forget who it was, DSDO, so that we could, we, we came into the State Department building at about one o'clock in the morning. We got past all the, all the, the alarms. The alarms did go off, but the guards were told, if you show up and a guy named Robert Booth presents his credentials, just leave him alone. Just walk away. Didn't happen. And um, so we got in there and it was also stunning to see how fast you can break into a safe if you know what you're doing. Those D-bulls only keep out the honest people. If you're a real good crook, you're real good, you'll, you'll get in in about 25 minutes. That's why they have alarm systems also where the safes are kept. So you'd see movement, it goes off. So what happened, we opened the, it was opened up and we opened up the control drawer that, that Hansen had there. And there was so much incredibly sensitive information concerning the Russians. We just looked at each other and said, what is he doing with this information? This is way above what he does here at OFM. And it was kind of hard, so I stepped away um, uh, because that, my, my job was kind of over with at that particular point. And so um, the people in there were starting to look at all the documentation to say, so I started to go to the, the conference room behind the, inside this area was all closed off. And I saw my good friend, Don Sullivan, sitting at the desk, the conference desk with his head in his hands. And I said, Don, what's the matter here? And he says, Robert, you don't understand every single operation we ran against the Russian embassy 
and their officers here in Moscow has been compromised for the last 10 years. The Russians knew everything we were doing. All the effort, the millions of dollars, the efforts that the FBI had done, and maybe some from the CIA and DIA, or NSA, I don't know. If Hansen knew about it, he compromised it. I mean, it's huge what he did. And people, I mean, I think people do understand, but it's incredible what he did. It's frightening. So, I mean, um, Don was devastated. And, I, and at that point, I got a real understanding of how, how deadly one person can be if he's trusted. If he or she is trusted, people will talk to you. And that, that's what kind of leads us up to, I think, the bigger case that I had, and that's the Kendall Myers case. Um, Kendall's chapter one of my book, it's the most satisfying. The second most satisfying was getting criminal jurisdiction recognized by the AUSAs and DOJ. But professionally, um, uh, Kendall Myers is my, uh, is my most satisfying achievement working with, with diplomatic security. And um, it all happened when, um, again, an FBI, it's, her name is Kate Allman. She's an FBI agent who, was, who had known me for years. And I remember at this point, I'm not even a special agent anymore. I'm a contractor. You know, I'm not even supposed to speak for, the, for DS outside my office space. But Kate had known me and Kate had worked with me on a case called Bitter Enemy. And this is a case um, some years ago, where uh, three University of Wisconsin students were recruited by the Stasi. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, one worked for DOD. Um, and long story short on that one, one of those three University of Wisconsin students, acting as a student at George Washington University, was able to get two State Department officers to supply him classified information working on his PhD. I know, it's just it is my second book. I am finishing up my second book as we speak. It, in fact, I'm doing the editing right now on it. Okay. And, uh, and it's called Operation Bitter, it's a Bitter Enemy. And so what happened was these two clueless State Department people gave Jim Clark, one of the three students, class of information. And what happened, one had already resigned by the time I interviewed the second person. She lied to me. We know she lied. And she was terminated from State Department. Once again, that's how we did. So in any case, Kate and I had worked that case. And Kate had actually gotten me the opportunity to do debrief Jim Clark about how easy it was to get State Department people to supply him with sensitive information. It's just incredible. And so Kate Allman broke the rules. The FBI had been looking for a Cuban mole inside the government for nine years. But because the information had been derived from an NSA intercept and decryption, the NSA said you cannot share that information with diplomatic security, even though the suspect most likely works for the State Department. So the, the FBI could not give us all the information that they had about the spy, the alleged spy. So they could finish bits and pieces, and the case went nowhere for seven years. And Kate Allman came to me and said, Robert, you know, swear on a stack of Bibles that if I bring you over to FBI headquarters, I'm going to allow you to see decrypts. I'm going to allow the FBI analysts to give you their analysis of why they think 
the unsub, unknown subject, is in fact a State Department employee. I said, sure, <laughs> nothing can happen to me. I'm a contractor. The worst they can do is fire me. So I was brought over to FBI headquarters like six o'clock at night. I go, th I go up the corridors and I finally get in this room and there's three wonderful FBI analysts, just wonderful. And they sit me and Bill Stowell down. Uh, he was a, a full-DS agent at the time. And they allow me to read nine decrypts. And they said, based off these nine decrypts, here's a profile of what the State Department person is. Clearly a male, clearly married, clearly X, Y, and Z, and so on. And I, I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I said, wait a minute. I said, how long has these transmissions from Cuba been coming up, you know, up the coast and, and, and gotten Washington, D.C.? They know it's been about nine years. And I looked at them, and I said, well, you know, then the State Department employee can't be a Foreign Service officer because they have to rotate. Where a GS employee stays here all the time. Now, that simple clue that we in the Foreign Service know, but others would never know, was an incredible clue. Sure. We went from, we literally went from about 50,000 possible suspects to 300. Yeah. And there was, a, there was another clue that was in one decrypt where the suspect had used very acronistic, uh, very unusual uh, words to describe something. And I said, oh, that guy works at Foreign Service Institute. And they look and said, what's that? It didn't make any difference. They said, okay, Robert, what can you do with this, this profile we give you? So what I did, I took the profile and uh, I gave it to a DS agent who was really proficient in computers. And what she was able to do was she was able to access the HR files of civil service employees from a certain time frame who were married, who had worked at FSI, and one other, and I said INR. And they ran the names. It literally, it really, it really smoked the computer. Apparently, that was such a hard run on the computer. It crashed the computer, the mainframes on the fifth floor, and some guys came up to say, What are you doing? And uh, she was great. She said, Oh, I, I didn't, ah, can, can you guys help me do this? And they said, Oh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, well, yeah, this is, we'll, we'll make it a whole lot easier for you. So two days later, Karen, came to see me in my little cubicle and says, Robert, I don't know why you want this. Again, I couldn't tell her why I was doing this. And she said, but if all the profile is true for the FBI having what the two profile indicators you put in, here's the names, all 21 of them. I said, 21, that's it. We can do this. So um, what I had to do was at that point was to call up I, I couldn't go down to, to the, the personnel and say, can I see these you know, 21, 30, 21 files? Everyone knew who I was. So what does Robert Booth want 21 State Department files? What's a mole hunt going on here? So I, you know, I had to be a little sneaky, but luckily for me, there was a senior, off, a senior uh, member of uh, the PIB staff named Barbara Shields. And Barbara and I go back 25 years. So I went down to see Barbara. I said, Barbara, and I knew she could. I said, can you call up these... 21 files without arousing any suspicion. And I, I can look at them. I'll keep them here. I'll go to that windowless room over there and I'll look at it. 
And Barbara said, I'll call them up. And once they start arriving, I'll give you a call. Come on down and take a peek. I trusted Barbara. I knew I could trust her 100%. So the files started showing up and I started reading through them. Um, there was no Cuban connection. And I, I just said to myself, wow, what have we done wrong here? Until I came across file 13. And in file 13, all the counterintelligence indicators just leaped out of the pages. And it was Kendall Myers. So what I did was it satisfied the, 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 the profiles we were looking at. So I made a contact the FBI and told them they can come on over and look at one file who I thought strongly fit the profile for who we thought was the unsub agent. And the FBI agent who was responsible for that did come over. And within two days, he said, I agree with you, Robert. It's him. Now, I had to finish looking at all the other files, but that was the only one that met all the everything. Plus, there was a incredible Cuban connection. Uh, he had actually traveled to Cuba while he was working at FSI. So I had Kendall was also but the thing I said when I looked at the profile, I said, this State Department officer has to either work at FSI or INR. It turns out that Kendall worked at FSI and INR. I mean, he really fit all the profile. So they opened up an investigation. It was a full investigation. Uh, we, we monitored his office space audio uh, because he had no children. We were able to introduce an audio device, what they call sneaks and peaks. You go into his apartment late at night and, and we started finding more evidence of, of his, uh, of his uh, espionage activities. And what was the outcome? Wasn't his wife involved in some way? And uh, Gordon, you know, where, Gordon, where'd they go from there? Yeah. What happened was uh, in monitoring everything, uh, we, what, what would happen was uh, I had 13 hours of debriefing Kendall Myers. It was part of the plea bargain agreement. Now, what had happened was Kendall Myers taught himself to have a great memory. He was definitely afraid of walking out of State Department with documents in his briefcase or in his pocket in case the guards would stop him. We know Maine State is not going to allow the guards to search officers leaving State Department. That's never going to happen. But he was still petrified about that. So what he would do is in the office, he would memorize documentation. He would start conversation. He was not a Cuban expert. He was UK-US relationships. And so, but he would talk to people about what's going on. Hey, what's going on in Cuba? What's my buddy there? And they'd tell him, the Cuban analysts. So he got all that information. And what he also did is INR had a page every day they produced, which were the top 20 threats going on around the world. And he, he would access that. He normally couldn't access Cuban stuff. But if, it, if Cuba came up on the top 20, he'd memorize everything. He'd go home. His wife, Gwendolyn, would sit down in front of a laptop. He would download from his brain all the information he'd learned during the day. She would type it up and quote it on a disc, go to an uh, internet cafe and download it and send it to her handler down in Mexico City. Fully compliant, full of full conspiracy. So based off all the information that we had, we still did not have enough information. We never caught him passing information. We never, we never caught that because he didn't take it out. And he, he didn't give it to him. It went by disc, by his wife. So unfortunately, there was an incident, and I won't go into it, but if you like, you can read in the book, um, where he became aware or suspected that he was under surveillance. And that was because a non-career senior State Department officer did something very stupid 
that alerted him to the fact he may be under investigation. So he resigned. Now he doesn't have access to classified. He can't pass any information. We still monitored. And finally, the FBI decided to do a uh, what's called a false flag. They got one of their assets, a Cuban asset, a fully American asset, who would approach Kendall Myers on, this, on the uh, John Hopkins University Science Campus in D.C. and ask him if he'd like to reinvigorate his former espionage lifestyle. And thank God it worked. He fully agreed to go back to work because once he retired from state, he was done. So we were successful at that. He took the bait. His wife took the bait. They met with this asset of the FBI on three occasions at the hotel rooms downtown Washington, D.C., and uh, he made many admissions against his self-interest and the classified information he passed along to the Cubans. So based off that, well, we on the fourth meeting, he was arrested at the meeting when he made some more incriminating information. And so he was brought, um, he was arrested that afternoon and, and, and jailed for, for espionage, 7934, which is big espionage, not unauthorized transmissal like Candace Claiborne, not like Don Kaiser. This is, this is the Hanson espionage stuff. So it was big, it was the big E. And how much time did he do? Oh, he's never getting out. He's in Florence no. Superman. Okay. Oh, he's, he's done. He's Hanson. Hanson in the same prison. They're never getting out. Uh, his wife, it was part of the plea bargain agreement that what he said was if he agrees to cooperate with the government, and he only cooperated maybe 60%. I know he lied to me in the debriefings. Um, I didn't, I did not confront them. It's not my job to confront them. I needed to tell me, I needed him to tell me everything I could hear about what he did. His wife got 81 months. And interestingly enough, she went to a federal prison in Texas for women. And one of her Cellmate, not her cellmate, one of her prison buddies was Anna Montez. The other Cuban spy. She gets out this Sunday. This Anna Sunday? Montez, this, well, she may, already, she may already be out. Okay. The, the drop dead date is this Sunday. She's done her 22 years. But Gwendolyn Myers, Cuban spy, was in federal pen in Texas with Anna Montez, Cuban spy. Hmm. So the plea bargain agreement was she'd only get 81 months. It's the longest one ever got cons for conspiracy. She got out, but the warden never allowed Kendall to receive any of her mail. He never allowed her to ever see Kendall. And she passed away of a heart attack either last, last year, I'm pretty sure. And Kendall is, is locked up in perpetuity in a, in a horrible, solitary jail there in Florence Supermax. And you said that's the same place uh, Hanson is in? Yeah, the, the Unabomber is there. I, uh, the real bad guys are there. Um, sure. I, yeah. Uh, it, it's 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 pretty miserable. Yeah. It's outside Denver, Colorado. So that was those those were some of the bigger cases I had. Um, the 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 one thing about um, Kendall Myers and Anna Montez was that the connection between the two of those was the Sice campus, the John Hopkins University campus here in Washington D.C. Um, Anna Montez was recruited by a USAID employee by the name of Marta Quez. Long story short, Marta Quez, when Anna Montez was arrested, Marta Quez quickly married a Swedish diplomat and is now residing, <coughs> excuse me, in Sweden where we can't extradite her because the Swedes do not recognize espionage as a uh, criminal act, it's a political act. So state department, here's how Castro was able to effectively counter anything we did. 
they had a spy at DIA, they had a spy at USAID, and they had a spy in State Department. Any initiative, any program that the U.S. government launched or tried to operate against Cuba, Castro knew before the final document was prepared. No wonder he's beat, he won every, he beat out every president. Did, they, they completely infiltrated the U.S. government. In any of these cases, particularly with these, with the uh, whether whether you investigated them or not, the, the Cuban cases, what what was the motive behind it? Was it ideological? This or? is this is this is the most fascinating thing. In Montez's case, in Kendall Myers's case, in the case of three University of Wisconsin students, one hundred percent ideological. There's never any unexplained affluence. One of the biggest counterintelligence indicators is lots of money. Uh, Rick Ames. The house, the Jaguar, everything else. Hansen, all this money he was spending, put his kids through school. Those, those spies did one, and they are the toughest ones to find. Every one of them is unrepentant. Anna Montez is unrepentant. The Wisconsin students are unrepentant. Uh, the, the, the State Department person who gave that information to the University of Wisconsin student, she's unrepentant. Kendall Myers, unrepentant. You mentioned the term counterintelligence indicators. Uh, would you be willing to share or able to share what some of those might be? Oh, absolutely. The first thing is unexplained affluence. If someone has money that you can't explain, that's a huge indicator. Foreign travel to certain countries is also an indicator. Uh, and if they're practicing counter surveillance, that's an indicator. And I'll, I will share one. If we have time, I'll share one counterintelligence indicator that Please. drove us through the roof. We strongly suspected one State Department officer was spying for a friendly country. And we were monitoring him. And one day, we noticed in his office that he grabbed a whole bunch of documents, stuffed it in a briefcase, and walked out of the office at the end of the day. Now, we had an FBI DS team follow him. And he walks up uh, 23rd Avenue, for those in Washington, D.C. It's, it's where the metro stop is for Foggy Bottom. He walks up to the street. He's, there's a trash can that's outside. He reaches in his briefcase and throws all his, the documents that he took out of his office, his main state, five minutes ago, into the trash can and gets in the metro and goes home. So we have a DS and FBI agent who's monitoring this in a car. And we're monitoring, monitoring, monitoring all night long until the morning. Finally, 7 o'clock in the morning shows up and the trash, the trash men come and they grab the GW trash can and dump it in the trash, the big truck, and it pulls off. And immediately the FBI DS team follows the trash, the, the truck, as it goes around the corner. And just as he stops, they jump out, badge the guy. The guy had a heart attack. You know, he thought he was being arrested for all the dope he probably had on, those marijuana cigarettes. It's legal in the district. And so what happens is the guy, what, what, no, 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 no. So we, 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 we not me, the, the, the DS and the FBI agent, they go in there, and there's the trash from the GW trash can. It had not been crunched. There were newspapers, unclassified documents, all sorts of other shit. None of it was classified. So what had just happened there? This guy and his handlers were going to see whether or not he was being followed. They were hoping that when he dumped that stuff in the trash can, within an hour, some people would go to that trash can and take the stuff out. But because we didn't, and we waited. That, to me, is a huge counterintelligence indicator because he was practicing counter surveillance. 
because that the friendlies would have had probably someone sitting in that small park next to the metro stop there to see if anyone had showed up to remove the stuff from the trash. Well, that was I smart. Another, on, uh... I'll, give you, I'll give you another counterintelligence indicator. I, I know. I talk about this stuff all the time. If you have a camera above an officer's desk and you see him open his drawer and stack a couple pennies on top of the dividers inside the drawer and slowly close it. If he comes to work the next day and opens his drawer and sees the coins have fallen down, what does he know? Someone came in his office that night and opened up his drawer. Those are there are other. I mean, there are huge counterintelligence indicators out there. Yeah, tricks of their trade that you know, you're all we're onto. Yeah, you had mentioned in our phone call that there uh, there are obviously a lot that are still out there that that you can't really talk about names or anything like that. But is there any others that you could share that that maybe the listeners uh, might find interesting of folks that were not caught? <laughs> I'll share one. I, 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 I might get in trouble with this one, but I don't care. Um, again, there, we, there's another State Department officer, had worked for years and years and years, state, and um, he had had a number of tours in a, a friendly country. But we strongly suspected, for a lot of reasons, that he was an active asset for this country. And what happened was, um, he was about to retire, and the State Department said, oh, by the way, would you do, would you, would you do a third tour in this country? He said, yeah, sure, I, I, I'll be more than happy to go back. And we, we were apoplectic about that. Nothing we could do. We didn't have enough information to go forward. He ended up in this country, and we alerted the RSO to the fact that we strongly believed we had to bring him in, read, you know, read him the riot act, non-disclosure statements. You know, by the way, uh, we want to let you know that this officer at your post, we strongly suspect is an asset, but you can't do anything about it, but you just got to monitor. Um, in the two and a half year assignment, he was there. He never came back to the United States. He married a local national. Talk about the Willies going through the roof. And the local national was an LES staff member. You know, she got debriefings from the local intelligence service. And so um, we devised, we had a couple of things we're going to do. He had a massive counterintelligence indicator happen that the RSO managed and beautifully didn't do anything about it, but alerted us to it. it it's, it's massive. I, that one I can't, I can't tell you what it was. And so we said, okay, when he comes back to the United States, we're going to confront him. He retired in place and never came back to the United States. Wow. He then tried to get a job at the embassy working as a local. <laughs> oh, I admire him. Oh, you know, I don't have to like him, but I admire a good spy for who and what they are. So what yeah. we had to do, we had to, we had to craft up something and then and, and the RSO's office at this in this friendly country. Um uh, was able to deny him uh, getting a, a job inside the, the embassy. I can talk about this one a bit because he did pass away. He's one, he's one of many who got away. Uh, the last one I'll share with you, and you can ask me more questions, was um, we, long, we strongly suspect another State Department officer had supplied technical documents to the Russians while, while he was serving in Africa. And um, 
based off a tip we got from a, a Russian asset, um, he pay, he was paid a lot of money to provide a, a, a technical manual about top secret equipment that we had. So we were able to boil it down to one guy and eventually um, unexplained, he, he bought a house for cash after he came back. The, whole, the, whole, the unexplained uh, wealth was, was where we thought we could go ahead and do a, a confrontation interview. We sent a DSFBI team down to the southern part of the United States. The team is lined up across the street. And this is years, this is years and years after this happened. And um, we wait for him to come out of his house the first time. And he comes out in a wheelchair. He's got Parkinson's disease. He's a minority. DOJ says, close up the case. Don't even, even consider doing any kind of interview. Was it him? Was it him? Yeah, based off all the evidence we had, it was how we, we'd really like to understand how we got the wealth. Um, it's like this uh, new, new congressman from New York. He asked to explain how he got all that money when he was kind of poor a couple of weeks ago. So that that was another one who got away. Marta Quez got away. The one in the front of the country got away. Uh, we terminated and uh, ended the careers of others. Those ones we knew. But if anyone thinks there is not a full-fledged State Department officer inside state right now who's not an asset for a foreign intelligence service, they're kidding themselves. And in my book, I talk about Brown Tweedcoat, the guy who walked mm -hmm. out with the super pouch right outside the Secretary of State stuff. We never found him. Um, and there were others that, that got away. Absolutely. The, the other ones I, I, just, I just can't talk about. These ones I can talk about because they're you know, almost 20 years old. Uh, there's some, the FBI has brought me back periodically to do, assist them off the record on looking at State Department cases. Yeah, there, there, there are more than a handful that got away. To follow up on one of the questions I had earlier, I was specifically talking about Cuban spies and, and they're, mm. they do it for ideology. They, did, they weren't repented at all. Uh, Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen for the Russians, uh, Kaiser for the Taiwanese Chinese. Um, what were their motives? Was it, I mean, Hanson had money. What was Ames' motive? What are, what are, oh, money. Oh, Ames was oh, money. Okay. Almost, all, almost, all the, almost all the CIA and FBI guys did it for money. State's ideological. Mm. I mean, Don, Don is kind of unusual. It is ideology, but not what you think. Don was a firm believer in the Chinese people. He despised the Chinese Communist Party. Anything he could do to checkmate the Chinese Communist Party, he, he would. And I think what he did, besides getting very intimate with Isabella Chang, the information he supplied, because we saw it, was that he tried to give them information to help them negotiate the Chinese Communist Party's efforts against them, to help the Taiwanese blunt Chinese Communists, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, intrusions against the Taiwanese to deny them diplomatic initiatives to deny them being on WHO, deny them being an IMF, deny them everything. And what he provided them was not about, you know, the Patriot missile systems, not about the capability of our nuclear propulsion subs. He provided them with diplomatic information to help the Taiwanese fight the Chinese Communist Party. Again, it would be ideological. A little sex on the side ain't bad. Sure. Yeah. Um, what other countries? So I want to see how I phrase this because we don't want to say anything yeah, that might be classified. Yeah. But for for in for uh, 
investigator for, for investigations that you've seen, or maybe from your, your FBI colleagues have seen, um, you know, you got you got your Russia, your China, your Cuba. Are there other countries that folks are that, that Americans are spying for for other reasons? I'm sure there there are, but oh, are there any more that are any more that are more prevalent than others? No, I mean to, to run a first class intelligence agency, you also have to remember that uh, um, it takes. A government resource and it costs a lot of money of course the chinese the cubans only have one main enemy so they can focus all their efforts against the united states so they don't have to worry like the chinese and the russians who still have to focus on everybody else around the world but when you talk about those three countries i think you're really kind of hitting the big ones you've got out there but then again you have to remember and i'm trying to remember the case of the cia officer in west coast africa who had been recruit who was blackmailed and recruited by her um local lover to supply information on what was going on there. We also had a woman by the name of Virginia Baines in the Philippines who supplied information um, to her lover. And then we, most, we also had the case, I'm trying to remember who was the individual also in the Philippines who was supplying information based off his intimate relationship with a U.S. government employee. So those things do crop up. I mean, and that's why, you know, when you have your background investigations, uh, you ask the questions, who are your closest or more intimate foreign citizen friends to try to get a to run, uh, name databases on? So um, the big ones you have to worry about, but you can have very small ones because if they're, they can put focus all their efforts on one State Department officer in that country. If that person is committing uh, blackmailable activities, what makes that person vulnerable? Uh, so it, it could be South Africa. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, the last one I'll give you, and it's not in my book, is that the African National Congress, which was a anti-apartheid political organization uh, that fought against the uh, white-only government in South Africa, they actually had uh, observer status at the UN. And one of their employees was able to recruit a young New York uh, college student to become a spy for them. And this guy, Donald, traveled to South Africa under their auspices to do reconnaissance work. He got petrified about it. He came back to the United States and told his uh, ANC handler, I'm not gonna do this anymore. But lo and behold, he ended up in the State Department years later. And he recontacted his handler and says, I'm now in a position to help the ANC in its fight against the white South African government. And he did for five years. Hmm. He came to the State Department. He was already a spy. Okay, one more. Stephen Lalas. Stephen Lalas was recruited by the Greek intelligence service while he was an airman serving in Turkey. He's Greek heritage. And on a trip to Greece, he's meeting family members. And when he came back, he went to the Greek consulate in Turkey. He said, I want to get my visa renewed to go to Turkey. And the Greek consular officer was able to convince him to be a spy because Turkey is the main enemy and you can hurt the Turks. And Stephen Lawless bought it. And he supplied the Greeks, the Greeks, you don't think of the Greeks. And so what happened was he then left the, he left the Air Force, he stopped doing it. 
He tried to join the CIA. He couldn't join the CIA. Failed the poly. And he comes to the State Department, Cody. And we bring him in. And Stephen Lalas contacts his, he gets assigned to um, Yugoslavia. And at one of the national holidays there, uh, Stephen Lalas reaches out to the Greek political offices. Hey, you know, I used to be a spy for you guys. <laughs> you can't make this up. So the Greek political officer grows back, you know, the, you know the, the, their intelligence office there in Athens and says, hey, is this really true? Goes, yeah, yeah, re-recruit re re him. And Stephen Lalas was re-recruited. And for several more tours, he supplied the Greek intelligence service with information concerning Greek-Turk relationship, Greek-American relations, and Greek-Turk-American relationship. They ended up, he ends up at the American embassy in Athens. And it's there that luckily for us, some counterintelligence indicators show up. He's brought back to the United States under a ruse. He is convicted and he spent 14 years in jail. When he was released from jail, he spends six months on parole and he flies back to Greece. And yet it's on the press and the news. He has a motorcade meet the plane ramp side, put in a motorcade and driven off to his home on the hills that the Greek government has provided for him and provides him. Now, these are cases that are lost. These are all public, but they're lost to time, Cody. So in, in Stephen Lalas's case, it was ideology. Um, he did get some money, but not a lot, but he did it for ideology. And in the case of Donald, he did it because he, he, you know, he, he took expenses. He said that, um, um, I want to help the African National Congress overcome the white-led South African government. Mm. I am not aware. I mean, if you go back to Michael, these are Cold War spies, Alger Hiss, Michael Strait, all the others, they didn't do it for money. They wanted to level the playing field for the oppressed and the minorities. Yeah, ideology is a powerful uh, drug, you could say. Um, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to throw one out at you if you've heard of it, and, and it didn't end up being. Cody, uh, I'm retired. Okay. <laughs> well, still, still. Uh, so, uh, I believe it was when I was in DS, and I don't have all the details, but you may you may know it because you might have still been working. Uh, it, Belarus, there was a, I believe, it was a foreign service officer that was. Uh, we we talked about blackmail and was was mm -hmm. uh, 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 cheating on his wife, from my understanding, and. Uh, it is also my understanding that uh, he was approached and he refused to spy for, mm -hmm. for Belarus. Mm -hmm. And uh, the video of him cheating on his wife in a sexual act was displayed on Belarusian television. Are you familiar with that case at all? No, that's a Russian case. It's a um, Russian case. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 the, and the video is phony. It's, it's, it's disinformation. I actually have mm -hmm. that case in my file around the corner here. Um, okay. What happened was... Um, yeah, the boy, the Russians are nasty. They, did, they also did it to a um, a British uh, British diplomat too. What they had done is he was very effective in what he was doing. He speaks Russian very well, so that at one point he had to travel, and they um, uh, phonied up this uh, video of him in a hotel room having sex, and it just wasn't true. And uh, technical people were able to look at it. They, they approached him and they said, if you, know, if, you don't, if you don't help us, we'll, we'll make life very, very difficult for you. This is the one I know of. And it, it was public. And so that um, he refused. And then they showed it. And, and 
you know, nothing happened um, uh, mm. because it was not true. Yeah, I guess my so one I get that probably through the grapevine. You know how the grapevine talks, and then uh, oh, well, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, but, it's, but it but it but uh, it's eighty percent accurate. Yeah. Well, that there's still value there, and that they, they will, uh, you know, uh, they will approach you. They will uh, attempt to blackmail you if you do if you have blackmailable offenses, and uh, and if you don't cooperate, they could potentially choose to destroy you in some ways. Well, they can't. I mean, can you can you imagine the spouse of an officer seeing a video that allegedly shows your your spouse? in a bed with a, with a Russian in a, in a sleazy hotel room. I mean, you know, you've, you've got to, be, well, I was on a trip. I was in that city at the time frame. That was the hotel room. It's taken a day later. I mean, you got, I mean, that's when the government has the resources to go against you, they can make your life pretty damn miserable. Cody. Sure. Pretty damn miserable. Well, Robert, I could talk to you all day. Uh, this, this, I really enjoyed this. Uh, but, uh, I have, uh, young kids. I have to go tend to here in a little bit, but I would like you to give you the opportunity to chat about your book a little bit, where you can find it. State department, counterintelligence, leak spies and lies. And then if you are, if you choose to, to talk about your new book coming out, then let's do some of that as well. Okay. Yeah, no, my book, I just finished my contract with Brown book. So you still might or not be able to get it on, on Amazon. But if anyone would like a signed copy, uh, you can contact me through swampfox1 at verizon.net. Let me know how you want to do it. I'll sign it and I'll do it for 20 bucks. I'll, I'll pick up the postage and the shipping and everything else. Um, you can also get ebooks, I think. It's out there. Um, it's, the book is right now about six years old, but it's still very current as far as the information you read inside, especially. Uh, the, uh, the chapter which actually talks about unauthorized disclosures and how those cases work. Uh, my second book, which I'm finishing up right now, actually is the story of the three University of Wisconsin students who were recruited by um, an East German intelligence officer and eventually became spies for many, many years. Uh, one of those spies was able to, like I said earlier, was able to convince two State Department officers to supply him uh, with classified information. And that should be coming up. Probably sometime later on this year. What'd you say that the name of that book will be? It's probably going to be Bitter Enemy. Okay, Bitter I gotta Enemy. Make, I, I got to get the title search and everything else, make sure it's not said okay. before. Well, you um, let me know about when that comes out. Now, I'll uh, promote it on my end. Uh, you very know, kind, and, very and, kind. And maybe we'll jump on a short podcast just to talk about that one yeah. uh, and, yeah. and, you know, in, in more detail. So, well, awesome, Robert. I appreciate you taking the time to come on. I, I know uh, the listeners would uh, appreciate it. And and um, I will give you feedback that I get from them because I do get oh, feedback. Please. And there was some excitement around uh, having you on here. Um, uh, any closing thoughts? No, the only thing is, you know, um, I enjoyed my third, well, almost my 40 years in DS. I mean, DS treated me very well. Uh, they owe me nothing. Uh, I owe DS everything that they allowed me to do and allowed me to be successful. There were some obstacles every now and then, but I enjoyed my career in DS. Um, I continue actually to teach back at DS periodically. I actually go in to DSCI and, and do one case study where I'll uh, uh, we'll take one case apart. I will bring the agents and the investigators in. And instead of just lecturing, I say, I bring them a slide. And say, what will you guys do next? And ask them how they would go about resolving certain questions when they go through an investigation. So I do that using uh, the cases like the Donald case in South Africa and other cases that we have. That one year in Georgetown to get that teaching certificate or whatever you called it, that yeah. you weren't too excited about. 
sure has uh panned out for you because you're doing oh, a, you're doing a few it, things. It, it, you're a lecturer now, right? You're a professor. You had been after after your time. Yep. Yeah. What I, what I did uh, after I retired, there was a, uh, an organization called the CI Center. It was run by former FBI agents. And they took people, former CIA, DIA, OSI, and all the rest, and we would go out and teach to the community. Uh, the CIA and all these other mass agents, agencies would have their agents and analysts show up at the CI Center. And the reason why it was successful was because all of us had been retired. We had the ability to, it was, it was a secret level of teaching, but we were not beholden to seniors. We could say what we wanted. And, you know, when DS had screw-ups and certain things, I would acknowledge there in the room when DS had screwed up. And the F, you know, it was a, it was really well done, well set up. And at the CI Center, um, I was able to help uh, instruct literally thousands uh, of special agents in throughout the agencies. And, uh, and periodically, the CIA would ask me to come out and give a talk uh, to their organization. I remember specifically the polygraph unit wanted me to come out and give a talk about the Kendall Myers case. Although Georgetown University one year program was worth Every dime. Thank you, Jeff. That <laughs> sounds like it. Well, you've had an amazing career. Thank you uh, for sharing it. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I'm going to sign off now, but I do not hang up. I will just okay. stop the recording. And Absolutely. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. What an episode. Robert David Booth, everyone. Thank you, Robert, for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences with us. And thank you for your service to our great country. As Robert noted, if you're interested in buying his book, State Department Counterintelligence, Leaks, Spies, and Lies, you can email him directly at swampfox1 at verizon.net. That's one, the number one. Swamp, I'm sorry, swampfox1 at verizon.net. Uh, if you have trouble because I am uh, butchering this, then just send me an email and uh, at info at CodyPeron.com, and I will make sure you get connected with Robert. It is worth the read. It's really, really well written, and uh, and the stories. There's so much nuance and detail to how these investigations are conducted. It really, it's really uh, kind of inspirational uh, for 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 those who are going to DS and might uh, be interested in counterintelligence. I told Robert I didn't I didn't even know that 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 uh, the CI branch did so much. So very impressive, and I'm very thankful uh, that Robert came on the show. <clears throat> okay, so now's the time I tell you about how you can learn more about the Diplomatic Security Service and other global security information. Uh, I happen to mentor folks looking to go into DS. I do it through a number of different mediums. Um, first one of course is my Patreon where there's different levels you can contribute. Again, it helps me pay the bills, the, uh, the, the LLC, you know, the, the zoom call, everything that that's kind of associated the, the podcasting platform, everything's associated with this. The Patreon is an opportunity to contribute. Should you be interested? Uh, I do post, uh, thought provoking articles about DS, about global security and personal safety, um, and, uh, I do, you know, uh, writing samples, mock interviews. Uh, I do short stories, stories that didn't make my book. Uh, I will, uh, talk about those stories and usually about 20 minutes long. And it's just, uh, I try to make it, I had someone write a review, write a review that said, Hey, it, Cody tells stories like he's sitting around the campfire and that's kind of how, how I want to do it. Maybe someday I'll make a video and, and do that as well. But, uh, yeah, Patreon, like I said, you can join the Patreon. There's different levels. If you are interested in becoming a DSS agent, I, like I said, I do mentor. I do mock interviews, writing samples, give you feedback, help you trim the fat on your your uh, 
you know, your statements uh, or your, your uh, scenario-based training. And I think it really adds value if that is something you're interested in. Uh, that is the only one that costs. Everything else is free. Uh, YouTube, Cody Perron, I have about 40 videos up uh, that talk about life as a DSS, especially I answer questions. So basically people submit questions and I answer them on a video. Um, and if you have any questions, if I haven't answered one, uh, one that you have, maybe you have a very unique question or a very unique situation, then you can um, submit your question to me at any of these mediums in at YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, uh, or uh, my email, and uh, I'll answer those questions. I can make a video about it. Uh, there is also a Facebook group. It's called Becoming a DSS Agent. Um, it is a very unique group in that it is uh, DS uh, candidates or, or, or aspiring DS agents interact with former, retired, and current DS agents of all levels. And so there's a lot of good intel in this group. There's a lot of people or active DS agents that are willing to help. I've designated some group experts. So when they comment, you can believe that it is real information. The whole point of that group is to kind of break through the clutter and the misinformation that is out there. There's a lot of people guessing online on these 911 forums and the Reddit forums. This one is as accurate as can be. I do vet people coming in the group. I also must ask that if you're going to join the group, fill out the questions. I need to know that you're interested. I need to know who you are before you come in the group. So Facebook, becoming a DSS agent, and we welcome anybody that's interested. Uh, Instagram, off the X underscore Inc. Inc. Uh, I post on Instagram a good bit. It's been slow around the holidays. I mean, that's the holidays for you, but, uh, but, but I do post. I do everything from posts about DS, posts about global security. I post some scenarios sometimes. Um, uh, personal safety, a lot of personal safety stuff that I, that I'll put up there, uh, and have a good, pretty good following. So if you're interested, go check it out and, um, you know, ask questions and, and, uh, if you want to add value, please add value. Um, the, this podcast, of course, if this podcast, uh, was, was enjoyable or helpful to you, I would ask that you share it and that you give it a like and you tell people about it. Um, and if you have guests that want to be on the podcast that you think might add some value, then, uh, let me know. And we'll go, we'll, uh, we'll work through it. Um, and my book. So all this started with my book. It's called Agents Unknown, uh, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It's available on Amazon. It's on Audible. It's iBooks, Barnes & Noble Online. You can also get it on my website, CodyParon.com. Um, the uh, different formats. I have digital format. I have uh, paperback. Um, and of course, we have the audio version. I am working on a second edition of that book. There's going to be some changes, some additional stories, uh, and a couple other cool things that I will get to here in the coming months. Um, <clears throat> if you do go to CodyParon.com, there is some gear there. Like I said, I'm just selling things. I'm not. A, I'm not an apparel company, but I do sell things. I do sell a couple shirts and hoodies that have become quite popular with the high, high threat protection logo on it. Um, and I, as I said, this helps me pay the bills. I do a little bit on the side. I do have some pretty cool mugs as well. Uh, it's like uh, uh, coffee or 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 uh, bourbon drinking mugs, should you be interested in that. Uh, it's on the website. Um, as you might or might know, there is a cost associated with everything I'm doing. I know I mentioned that earlier in the podcast and other mediums. But uh, if you want to support, like I said, you can find those uh, uh, those items on my website. Um, and, uh, as again, again, if you like this episode and you think that it adds value, please share it. 
uh, write a review, um, hit the five stars, and I would be very grateful. So thank you again for all your support. And as always, hit me up and let me know how I can help you. Info at CodyParon.com or DM me. That means direct message for those of you that don't know. Uh, all my different mediums and I will get back to you. I appreciate the support. Thanks, y'all. Out.